said it. Monday, May 11th, 2020. Born the Battle. Brought to you by the Department of Veterans Affairs. The podcast that focuses on inspiring veteran stories and puts a highlight on important resources, offices, and benefits for our veterans. I am your host, Marine Corps veteran Tanner Iskra. Hope everyone had a great week outside of podcast land. And if you're still sheltering in place, and if you haven't shaved or gotten a haircut, I salute you. A couple ratings, one review this week. This review comes from Doc 8400, 8404, 8406. We in the Marine Corps love our docs. Says five stars, great timely info. This podcast gives a lot of great information and is very entertaining. Professional podcast for veterans by veterans. Doc, thank you for your feedback and thank you for helping push us up in the algorithms. Because as you know, those ratings and reviews and subs go a long way to pushing up this info in the Apple podcast algorithms so that this podcast and the info and the stories in it can get in front of even more veterans. And if you're playing this from the the blog on blogs.va.gov, your preferred podcasting app of choice is right on the player. You can click on the subscribe button right on the player and it will give you a list of choices to subscribe from. Okay, news release time. All right, again, in the interest of time management, I'm just going to run through the titles and maybe a sentence for each one. And then if I've teased it enough and you want to know more, I'll give you the website where you can go to find more info on it. All right, first one says, for immediate release, VA joins XPRIZE Pandemic Alliance to combat COVID-19 and future outbreaks. So the VA has partnered with this uh, alliance and in the immediate term, the XPRIZE Pandemic Alliance will focus on accelerating solutions for remote care and telehealth, provisioning personal protective equipment, and increasing COVID-19 test access and availability. VHA's National Center for Collaborative Healthcare Innovation, or NCCHI, will provide thought leadership, public health expertise, and insight on feasibility and scalability of ideas to the XPRIZE Pandemic Alliance. All right, second news release says, for immediate release, VA works with communities nationwide to meet, to meet critical need for blood. The U.S. Department of Veterans Affairs and its participating medical centers across the country kicked off blood drives in late April, partnering with the American Red Cross and community organizations in response to the ongoing need for blood during the coronavirus 2019 public health emergency. If you want to know how to join the effort, visit redcross.org to schedule an appointment. Okay, news release three says for immediate release, veteran trust in VA healthcare rises above 90% for the first time. So the VA has received over 4 million surveys since 2017 via their Veteran Signals Customer Feedback Program. And on April 30th, the VA released survey results showing veteran trust in VA healthcare outpatient services has increased by more than 5% since 2017, reaching 90.1% as of April 12th. Okay, next news release. Number four says, for immediate release, VA expands access to virtual hearings. Uh, we reported on this in a, in one of our COVID episodes when Cheryl Mason sent us a an exclusive message here on Born the Battle. However, the, uh, the press release says the U.S. Department of Veterans Affairs Board of Veterans Appeals today announced it's expanding access to virtual hearings to all veterans awaiting their board hearing after successfully testing the capabilities during the last year. 
For more information on virtual hearings, you can go to uh, bva.va.gov, and they have a click here for more information on virtual hearings. If you click on that, uh, there's an entire fact sheet. All right, news release number five says, for immediate release, VA participating in drug plasma trials in fight against COVID-19. The U.S. Department of Veterans Affairs announced participation in a series of clinical trials and investigations across the nation aimed at finding ways to mitigate or potentially prevent symptoms of COVID-19 in patients. One of which is in cooperation with the Mayo Clinic, which is studying whether blood transfusions from people who recovered from COVID-19 can help those who are still suffering from symptoms. Plasma from COVID-19 survivors contains antibodies that may help current patients. For more information on the expanded program and how you can participate, visit uscovidplasma.org. All right, on a news release six says the U.S. Department of Veterans Affairs today announced it is helping 38 states and territories with the response to the coronavirus disease 2019, otherwise known as COVID-19. In coordination with FEMA, VA has deployed doctors, nurses, and nurses' aides to state-run nursing homes in several states where COVID-19 has emerged among vulnerable populations. Basically, the entire news release is an update to where and how VA has responded to requests from FEMA and states for assistance. All right, almost home. News release 7 says, for immediate release, VA enhances national COVID-19 reporting summary tool. The U.S. Department of Veterans Affairs announced today that it has enhanced its national COVID-19 report summary website that provides a real-time look at the status of COVID-19 patients who have been tested or treated at VA facilities. Uh, I've looked at this website. It's a pretty cool site that gives you data in real time as it gets submitted. You can filter COVID data by state or by facility so you can know how COVID-19 is impacting either the entire VA system or you can even filter it down to your local area. Uh, to get to this website, just go to va.gov forward slash coronavirus, scroll down to the VA COVID-19 cases, and just click on the link, and it'll take you right to it. It's a really cool website. Check it out. Finally, news release eight, VA airborne hazards and open burn pit registry reaches a major milestone. The U.S. Department of Veterans Affairs today announced that the Airborne Hazards and Open Burn Pit Registry, which was started in June of 2014, now exceeds 200,000 registrants. Uh, the best way to find the registry is to go to publichealth.va.gov, scroll down to the military exposures, and click burn pits. In addition, if you want more information on the burn pit itself, we here at Born the Battle did a recent episode with veterans who serve in VA and manage the burn pit registry program. It's uh, it's Born the Battle episode 185. And for all VA press releases, you can always go to va.gov forward slash OPA forward slash press rel. That's P-R-E-S-S-R-E-L, all one word. All right. So I figured that there are many people out there who are using this this unique time in history uh, to start writing a book or, or finish a book that they started a long time ago. And, well, I figure that it's a good time to feature an Amazon best-selling author on the show. Today's guest is a Marine Gulf War veteran turned commercial diver, turned best-selling post-apocalyptic, I don't even know how to say that word, post-apocalyptic? There it is author. He's a best-selling post-apocalyptic author who eventually was signed by the largest publisher in the world. It's one of those intros that kind of writes itself. If you know, you can pronounce the words. He is a Marine Corps veteran, Jeff Michael Hopf. 
Enjoy. How do you pronounce your last name, Jeff? Is it is it Hop? Hop. Yeah. You Hop. pronounce okay. the P and the F. Okay. Good. Good. Um, so looking through your website, I I or you know, and I just googled your name to find it. I saw that you got a picture with George R. R. Martin. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. I met him at the Penguin Random House uh, Comic Con party a few years back. Yeah. Got you. Did you ask him when a uh, wind's a winder? <laughs> no, that was God. That was a few years ago. I actually mainly selfishly, I sat down in front of him and I go, I asked him, what's the best advice you can give a, a new writer? And, you know, he just pretty, pretty much gave me that advice. That was it. And then we kind of chatted about some stuff. And then there was a line of people that had gathered and I had uh, like a Marine bullishly just moved my way up to the front and just sat down next to him. And it was, it was a good conversation. He's a good guy. He's a good guy. Very talented author, of course. Absolutely. Absolutely. So Jeff, just like we ask every uh, guest here on Born the Battle, what compelled you to join the Marine Corps in the first place? I joined the Marine Corps out of a sense of adventure in a lot of ways. I would say that's primarily what I wanted to do. I really wanted to be part of an expeditionary force, travel, travel the world, see exciting lands, that kind of stuff. That's really the, the main crux behind why I joined. I always like interviewing Marines because it feels like we all share that same story of like, you know what? We're just going to join like the hardest one possible. It's like, you know, I had really good, I did really good in school and, you know, the, I took the ASVAB, I did really well on that. And I remember my recruiter telling me, you know, you can do anything you want. Like you can yeah. do any MOS, anything you want. I was like, I want to be infantry. You're like, really? you know, maybe you might want to reconsider that. I was like, no, I want to be infantry. I was like, okay. That's easy. <laughs> and, and it was just because I just wanted to, again, I wanted to travel the world. I wanted to see things. I, I was always a big reader growing up and always reading or uh, about these adventures of other Marines or soldiers or whatever, people around the world fighting. And I was just, that was just, I really romanticized that at that time at my young age. And uh, uh, that's why, that's why I did. And I joined specifically to get infantry. Outstanding. So either while you're in, either give me a best friend or your greatest mentor. Uh, you mean like a name? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Oh yeah. My, my, he's, he and I are still best friends today. Travis Ransdale. We were in together. We were in the Gulf War together. He and I still communicate till this day. I just, uh, texted him yesterday. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah. That's awesome. What, I mean, was he just a, a fellow Marine that just helped you get out, stay out of trouble or? Well, we actually got into trouble sometimes, but he just, we just really connected on a lot of, lot of things. He's a, you know, I'm a big fan of like history. He as well. So we, we would just have these, you know, long drawn out conversations, solving the world's problems. He was just a guy that I could have a, a conversation with and go deep. And I don't know, we just, our friendship really, you know, started then and just continued over the years. And we've, we always stayed in contact. We have our families now, we get together, our kids hang out and know each other. It's, it's, He's, I can say he's the one man that actually has known me the longest and kind of understands me. Very good. You, you talked about deploying to Kuwait. In your bio, you described it as, overall, my combat experience was something less than, I, than what I expected, as it seemed like a massive EPW exercise versus that epic combat that I imagined or seen in movies. Talk to me about your time in Desert Storm and what, what you meant by that. Well, I, you know, at that time, it was it? You know, the 80s, you had all these kind of war movies from the 80s. And mo most of the stuff was kind of focused around Vietnam and just, you know, whether it's watching uh, the platoon or Hamburger Hill and all these other, you know, full metal jacket and whatnot. Classics. Yeah. And, and so I'm, I'm imagining like if we're going to go to war, if I ever go to war, it's going to be something like that. Just totally hardcore. And 
Um, I'm not trying away at all to diminish, you know, anyone's experience that was over in, in the Gulf War and Desert Storm and so forth. I just imagine it would be something just different. And, you know, I was with uh, Task Force Terra when we went in and it just, I mean, we had engagements and here and there, but it just wasn't this kind of, again, but then, but then again, here I'm, 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 I'm using a movie as a reference on how things should be. When in reality, that more than likely is a lot of people's experience when they go into combat, you know, the stuff's coming at you, you're, you're throwing rounds back at them and, you know, and just, but without a doubt, the, I just don't know if the Iraqis had the, their heart in it, you know, I mean, they were the invaders, uh, I think of Kuwait, Kuwait and we were, you know, truly the liberators of Kuwait and we just crushed them. And then they, you know, but, you know, before we went in too, you know, we, they had suffered that, you know, that extended, you know, air war. Yeah. And so then when we come, you know, when we come barreling across those minefields, they're like, Oh my God. So I, it just, I just, it just, they just, you know, surrendered in mass. It was, it was amazing. Wow. It was very surreal. The whole thing was very, very surreal. Got you. Got you. You mentioned some of your some of the movies from the eighties. Dale Dye was recently on the on the podcast, and you can catch him in the archives. He had a pretty pretty big influence on Platoon and, and other films of that era. Now you got out in late nineteen ninety four, right? After about five years. Yeah, I got out and uh, I took terminal leave, sixty days terminal leave, and got out and was in November of ninety four. And my uh, I was supposed to EAS though in January of ninety five. So, what was the impetus behind getting out? All the guys I'd served with had gotten out. And because what I'd done, I'd gotten one of those six-year enlistments. And so I go in with all these people I know and we're on the same units together. We go through all these experiences together. And then everybody else, you know, 99.9% of everybody had uh, four-year enlistments. And most of them, you know, actually all the guys I hung out with just got out. So that was just kind of, I felt kind of like by myself. And then it was like, that was, that was it. That really wasn't the main crux of it. I remember them, they were, they offered me, I really only had two options of doing some B billets and I just kicked, I didn't really want to do that. I didn't want to, I didn't really want to go to recruiter school. I didn't really have this, you know, flame inside of me to be a drill instructor. And so I just decided I still wanted, I still had that kind of adventure bug in me. And what about, MS, what about MSG? You ever just Marine security guard? I think that was out there. I just, I, I was just, I think I was just feeling at the time I just wanted to stay in the kind of the line units. And I, I was, my memory was, I was just, they were telling me I needed to kind of progress in order to get, you know, the staff NCO, I needed to do some of these B billets or something like that. And so there was another guy that was in my unit he was getting out and he had, he offered me or introduced me to uh, a commercial diving. Uh-huh you know, underwater welding and that kind of stuff. And it looked yeah. just really cool. It looked like adventure, you know, and again, another job that was like, a, that was an adventure job. And so uh, I decided I made the, made the decision and got out and then went to uh, Houston, Texas and went to uh, the ocean corporation for commercial diving school. So that was that like within a matter of months of getting out? Yeah. Yep. I started, yeah, I started commercial diving school in January of 95. Did you use any, like a like GI bill? Was that did that help pay for that? Or? No, I didn't. No, no, I did not. And and they did offer it, but I all I had was what is it? Veteran Education Assistance Program VEEP. Okay, I did have that, and what's funny, I never even used that either. <laughs> that was completely out of pocket then. Yeah. Oh yeah, it was completely. Out of pocket. It cost me like six grand or sixty five hundred dollars to go to that school. Oh man. Yeah. So you started working in uh, underwater oil fields. What was that like? That was a very hard job and didn't pay what I imagined it did. So I did the school. I graduated in about six months 
And what I didn't realize is upon graduation, they do set you up with a job, but what they don't tell you is you're not going to start diving. What you do is you kind of, you operate as a tender and essentially it's kind of like a squire to a knight. So tenders go out, they set up the dive station, they do all the grunt work and they help the divers. So the divers do all the underwater work. And so you, you, you get all this education in the school, but then you, you spend the next year to 18 months getting on the job training. So you can actually what they call break out as a diver. And it took me around 18 months and I broke out as a diver. And then they were putting me in the water as they were saying I was able to get wet. You know, that's the kind of terminology. And then I did that for about two plus years. I almost was killed. And I was like, I, really? yeah, How? I, I, almost, How? I almost got sucked into a 36 inch pipe. There was an old natural gas pipeline that had been abandoned and they'd already cut it and they'd capped either end on either side of a river. This, this is when I was working in their inland division. We had to go down, remove the kind of makeshift cap, put in a, put in a, 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 a permanent cap. And the pipe was supposed to have been filled, not be void, right? So whenever they abandon a pipeline, they typically will, they will, it'll drain it. And then they put like an inert gas in it, right? And then they, that's how they leave it. And I went down and... I was I was excavating around it so the, the the senior diver could come down and place the cap on it and weld it on. So I was doing all okay. the excavation and when as I was removing this plug that was in there, all of a sudden I and I was laying in front of it, that was a big no no. And I heard all the sucking sound. Well apparently they hadn't filled the pipe with water. So imagine you're thirty some feet down, you've got this pipe that's thirty six inches in diameter that goes for about a half a mile in, that's completely just that's got all right. this water. Yeah, exactly. So the minute I'm cracking it, all the water, where does this water want to go? Into that space. And so I almost get wow. sucked into the pipe. I mean, it pulls me in. I, I, it hits my shoulder. I mean, it was just a bad situation. And fortunately, we're working on surface-applied air. They're having umbilical. Anyway, I got, I got pulled to the surface. They saved me. Had I been like on scuba, I'd probably have been dead. It would have sucked me into the pipe. Wow. Wow. So at so that point, you were like – uh, enough of this. Yeah, I remember. I remember getting on the phone with my dad after that, and I was only making like twelve bucks an hour as a as a breakout diver. Oh my god! Oh yeah, they don't. It, it doesn't. This this whole talk about commercial divers make a lot of money. It's not true. <laughs> and, and maybe maybe the top top five percent or something. Maybe. Yeah. Well, you got these guys who are like sat divers, saturation divers. Those guys make some money. Uh, those are the guys who are like living yeah. down in, in atmosphere for periods of time. Those guys make some really oh. really good money. But it's just the, the money's just really not there. Now, by the way, it may have changed now, but I know when I was doing it, it just didn't. I mean, I was making twelve bucks an hour as a breakout diver. But the juice, the juice wasn't the juice was not worth the squeeze. No, especially after that situation. There had been some other little situations. Like I'd actually, I'd gotten hurt more than I'd ever gotten in the Marine Corps. <laughs> Their policies for safety probably weren't the best. But yeah, it just and that company's no longer around that I used to work for either. But yeah, we were, we were kind of like cowboys out there. Anyway, gotcha. so I got on the phone. I mentioned to my dad, and uh, he goes, "Well, you know, I, I met this one guy up in Washington D.C. My, my dad was a lobbyist for the NRA, and he ended up meeting a gentleman at this party in D.C. And the guy worked for a company called Vance International, it was an executive protection company. And my dad mentioned it to me. He goes, "I'll, I'll put a, I'll, you know, I'll put a." I'll get, I'll, I'll get you guys exchange contact information, something along that line. And lo and behold, I sent him a resume. Then I go out and interview and I get hired to be an EP agent. So I go from being 
a Marine to a commercial diver to next thing I know, I'm now my bodyguard. It sounds like a quick consecutive sequence of events there. Like there wasn't much time between these things. Well, yeah, I, I be I went to executive production school. God, that was in 1997, 98, 98, somewhere right around there. Wow. Yeah. Wow. So what, what what were some of the details that you did while you were a bodyguard? Well, the first one, I worked for uh, the Saudi royal family, and oh, wow. that was uh, an interesting job. And I did that uh, off and on. And then I then besides that, I, I worked for Sony Corporation. I've worked for mainly corporate executives, Archer Daniels, like ADM, uh, Archer Daniels Midland. And so just a ton, a ton. So basically, basically, you were Liam Neeson and Taken. <laughs> First, I started out as just the guy standing next to a door for twelve-hour shifts, and then, oh, gotcha. and then, and then again, it's just the same thing. Like you start as a as a as a bodyguard or an EP agent for a lot of these companies, you you start out working kind of the low-level stuff. You start out working what they call residence posts. You're literally standing next to a door, you know, Ooh. and for twelve hours and. Until again, you, you kind of prove yourself and then they start putting you on uh, the actual protectee and then gotcha and or and or you start working in the command post. So gotcha. Gotcha. So you did this for how I long? Did, I was a bodyguard for uh, going. I, I was I was in and out of it for about 10 years. So during all this, uh, you share share with the, the audience how you met your wife while you were leading this with this whimsical life of, of being a bodyguard. <laughs> I, yeah, I was, I, I was actually, I was at that time I was working for Sony corporation down in uh, Mexico and I was taking, I was going to take a little sabbatical from it and go travel to Ireland with my friend, Travis. So it was, you know, who I mentioned earlier, he'd, uh, he'd like, Hey, let's go, let's go to Ireland. I'm like, yeah, it sounds awesome. Let's do it. And so we planned this trip and I, I knew some of these, uh, these Irish girls and they're like, like meet us at the pub. This is in San Diego. And we'll, we'll tell you all the places you should go. Like, I'm in. So I roll into this pub called the old sod and I see Tawny who would, who would eventually become my wife is in there. And the longest short of it, we're exchanging glances. And she, and she then, before she leaves, she walks up to me and gives me her card and she hands me her card and on and I see her, I see her, her name is Tawny Land. Her last name is Land. And then she goes, if you're ever, if you're ever interested in a piece of land, give me a call. And I was like, oh, yeah, okay. But was she a real, was yeah, she a real, yeah, she was in real like, estate. Did it, did it fit? Yeah. Oh, that's oh, I think it's the best. She, she does. Mm. She, she remembers it differently. That's how I remember it. But because uh, <laughs> it is funny because it said Tawny Land. And I, I swear to this day, she said that. She goes, if you're ever interested in a piece of land, give me a call. I'm like, last name is Land. Yes, I am interested in a piece of land. But um, that is hilarious. Yeah. That is hilarious. I, I had a the way I met my wife was at McDonald's. And I saw that she ordered number one. My literal response was, and this is what made me laugh about your story, is I literally walked behind my wife and I said, so I see you like number one. Like I see you like Big Macs. I like Big Macs too. Like that's all I said at the Quantico McDonald's on base. <laughs> 15 years later, we're married, been married for 10 nice. years. So nice. I, I always like, I always like uh, how, how you met. So now through this entire first part of your adult life, were you writing? Like in the Marine Corps? Uh, in the oil field, yeah, I was. I'd been dabbling at it. I'd yeah, I'd written okay. a journal when I was in in Desert Storm. I kept a journal, and then I would dabble in like little short stories and things like that. But again, just kept it at dabbling, and I was still kind of this, you know, action guy. You know, always trying to find these action jobs. And it wasn't until 
after after I get married and we have me, Tony and I have our girls that I, I one I like to read. And so then it's natural. Then we have the kids. I'm reading them, you know, out of the two parents. I was the one that primarily would jump in bed with them at night and read books. And on top of that, I read and then sometimes they're like, tell us a story. So I would come up with these outlandish stories about a dog or this or a cat or whatever. And the kids just loved it. And, the, and so I remember one time I came out and told my wife that um, I said, what would you think if I took one of the stories? There's this one specific story the girls loved. So what if I were to make that in like a children's book? You know, I mean, I've seen the books. They're not complicated. I mean. 600 words maybe at best and I could find an illustrator and yeah. blah 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 so <clears throat> he's like sure go do it so I I, I wrote that st- the one story that I had told them repeatedly I wrote it I wrote it down I did find an illustrator and eventually I had it I published it it came out and I was like I remember looking at that book and I was like wow that's that was an interesting process. It was a fun process, by the way, too. And I, you know, something that was an idea is now manifested in my hand. I was like, hmm, I wonder if I would ever write a novel. And that was kind of the, that was definitely kind of the. That first story, was that through a publisher? Or- I, I, no, I self published that. And I'll tell you, though, I hustled to get all my money back because the, well, you know what? The illustrator is what cost the money, right? I think it cost me around three grand or something for the illustrator. And I was just, I hustled to make sure I got all that on my mind. I was, I was, I was reading that book and selling the book at every preschool you can imagine in the area. <laughs> yeah. But, but yeah, I self-published it. And again, it was, I, I it, and, and by the way, the fact that I also turned around and did hustle to go sell it, those were things that ultimately set me up for where I am today. There's no doubt about it. The thing is, I didn't really know what I was doing. I didn't. I just had an idea. And Again, just being that Marine, I just like, I'm just going to go do it. And I don't, I don't, I don't spend too much time overanalyzing stuff. I've noticed that about my, myself because I feel like if I overanalyze it or try to research it too much, I can talk myself out of it. And so if I, if I really want to do something, I'll do just enough research and then just go do it. And I'll make some mistakes along the way. I'm the same exact way. I, if I overthink something, I won't do it. Yeah. Yeah. That's when all the self-doubt kind of comes in. So once the children's book was done, then I had the idea for uh, my first novel. And I was like, I'm just going to go do this thing. And I knew my wife would probably not agree with me taking the time. And so instead of presenting to her as just an idea, I went ahead and wrote two chapters. And then I mentioned it to her. Then she was like, oh, here's another idea because I'm that guy. I always have ideas. And yeah. I said, wait a minute, though. I've got two chapters. I want you to read them. So she's all. So she was kind of impressed by that. She sat down, she read them, and she was like, wow, this is really good. You should please continue this. This is a good story. And, but do it at night. (laughs) You're not going to quit your job. (laughs) So, and that's what I did. I spent, you know, after the kids were in bed, after it was, I was, went back, I was back to diving again. And, I, so after diving and after the kids were in bed, I, I spend, you know, three, four hours, you know, writing this novel. And the mindset shift I had is I stopped being a dabbler and I made the writing my job. And I, I remember I had that mind shift. I was like, this is just going to be a second job for me. If I considered yeah. it a hobby or, or I was going to dabble at it, I was never going to complete it. And so when I made that, yeah. that, that and dedicated it, or dedicated to myself, myself to make it a job, I got it done. 
So you were doing three or four hours every night. How long did it take for that first uh, first novel? Oh, it took me to get the actual rough draft done around nine months. And I was a lot slower. I'm a lot quicker now when I write a lot slower. And then then that process was amazing is I I was doing some research. I did it. I did end up securing an agent, which was just unbelievable for someone who's never published a book before and uh, was working with her. And then I got the book done. I mean, I mean, as far as done and edited, and then she was wanting to make some, some changes to it. And changes that I didn't, I wasn't comfortable with. And at this time, also, I'd had a bunch of beta readers. These are people that I know that had read the book, yeah. and it gave me an honest, you know, assessment of it. And they all loved it. They actually didn't think anything was wrong with the story at all. And so I had her over here saying, "No, you need to make these substantial changes because it needs to be more of a." It, the book just needs to flow differently, and the and then the and then the, the readers who would eventually and th- th- these beta readers were people that would would ultimately be kind of like the, uh, the like they're they're my customer they're they're the people that would actually buy the book the people that are actually interested yeah. in the genre itself and I was like they're the consumer really like your test bed a little bit exactly yeah that's a, yeah, that's a good way to put it and so I was like. So I said, I, my gut feeling was like, I'm just going to side with the, these people. And so I fired her. Oh, wow. I remember everybody else I knew were like, you're crazy. You don't fire an agent. You can barely get one. And you fired one. And so yeah. I fired her and then I hit self-publish on my first book. You went with uh, you went with your gut. So in 2013, you self-published your first book. This, this is the book we're talking about, right? Yes, the end. And in your, in your bio, you talked about questioning that decision. Like, like, you know, going on your own, firing your, your, your agent, take me through that entire decision from then to landing a deal with the largest publisher in the world. That decision was, I went, I was torn. It was like, ah, you know, market's like, she's, and she's good. She, there's nothing wrong with her. This wasn't, this wasn't like a thing that was professional. She was doing a good job. I just, my beta readers was telling me, don't change a thing. She was wanting to make some really some big substantial changes that I just wasn't comfortable with. And I, I, it's because of that. I said, I, I looked at the book and this is early on and I wasn't even really kind of, again, I was just such a, I was such a newbie at this, but just felt right. Like I said, my beta readers, and there's a bunch of my end up getting. And so my friends would had friends and like, I wanted everyone to read it, you know, to see what they thought. And I just knew that these would be the end consumers. Like if my book is a product, Shouldn't I, I want, I want the end consumer to like it, you know, and then these are the people that are in the demographic, they're going to read it. And then not, nothing against Margaret. She really wasn't. She just, she saw the potential for the book, but then wanted to make changes that she thought the people in the ivory towers in New York would want to see. Sure. Who was your, who was your, uh, chest bed? What was your, who were your beta readers? Like what, what was the type of consumer that you were looking for? Well, it was, you know, if you read the book, it's got Marines in it. And uh, it's about the end of the world. And so I had fellow Marines, people I knew, had them sharing with other Marines. And then there were people that I had known that were in the prepper community and survival community. They had had copies yeah. and they had spread it around. And they and so and those and by the way, still to today, that, that, that's a pretty decent size of the demographic that, that do read the, my books. And they were all coming back with very, very positive you know, responses to, to beta reading, of course, little issues here and there, but the overall response is overwhelming. Like this book is great. And so that's why I just decided, again, I sided with them, fired her, hit self-publish and wow. 
the first 10 days, it kind of languished. You know, I was like uh, selling about 10, 20, you know, books a day. And I was like, well, I guess it's just going to pay for dinner, you know, out with my wife once a month. <laughs> this is it. Maybe I shouldn't have fired Margaret. You know, I was like really like wringing my hands. And I just remember waking up one day and the sales had spiked dramatically. And I was like, wow, my, you can ask my wife this. I literally jumped out of bed. Like, what is going on? And because I'm not sure if you've ever seen like the Kindle direct publishing dashboard where you can uh, like see books as they're sold. I'm not sure if you publish a book. I've never published a book. No, no. Okay. So it, it's, it, it's not the, the dashboard itself is almost in real time. Like every time you click refresh, it can show you your sales. Okay. It's, it's interesting how Amazon has that set up and it can be really bad if you're a compulsive person because you're all constantly on the refresh, refresh, refresh. <laughs> and I, I just was doing that and there was, you know, every time I was thinking refresh, like 25 sales, 10 sales, like it, it just wouldn't stop selling. And I was thinking, I was telling my wife, I was like, maybe this is a fluke. Maybe the Amazon's doing some promotional thing on the book. I'm not seeing, I don't know what's going on. I couldn't figure it out. I hadn't done any marketing on it really. And it was just selling. And so that's, I said, well, maybe I'll just give it to, to tomorrow and they'll probably go back to doing 10 units a day. And then it, but it didn't stop. And then a week like that, and just it just wouldn't stop selling. Well, what are we talking about? Hundreds, thousands in a day. So we're so at the time I was doing I was doing hundreds of units a day um, compared compared to the ten that you were doing that first week. Yeah. Did yeah. you ever Did you ever find out what the spike was attributed to? I, I still to this day I don't know. I know it frustrates because I, I coach writers today and mentor people and they always want to, what's the, how, so how did the first book do it? I'm like, I don't know. I really don't know. I don't know. <laughs> I really don't know what, what, what did it. That's interesting. Yeah. It's the craziest thing. But, but all, all I know is when I saw that happening, I, I saw that the door of opportunity was wide open. Yeah. And so I went down to my wife and I said, listen, I need to quit. I need to quit my job. And she goes, what? And I was like, I need to quit my job. So I can get the second book out right away. I, I can't wait 18 months. I can't wait a year. I can't. I was like, I, I understood the market enough that when you've got something that's hot, you got to come right on the heels with the sequel of it. You can't wait that long. You get too much time in between. Yeah. It can be, it can be, it can be a problem. And there's so much competition out there as far as the, the amount of content that's out there. I could, I could get lost again. I mean, I could come up with a sequel too far, too late. And then people are like, who's this guy? They've already moved on. Yeah. Unless you're George R.R. R. Martin. Yes. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Not him. Exactly. And, um, and so, well, by the way, I got a good story on that though. This is, I'll, I'll tell you, it'll connect right after when I, I talk about this. I then, uh, I show her the spreadsheet where, where what I was going to make that month. And it was like triple what I was making for the year. And she's like, okay, <laughs> you can quit your job. And, uh, so I did, I quit. And then I went to writing just full time to get the sequel out. I get that done. And like, um, three weeks and at, and so in, I mean, in three months and in between that three months of me quitting the job and getting the, 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 the second book completed, I was getting a bunch of inquiries from publish smaller publishing houses. Other agents were contacting me, yeah. wanting to sign me. And then Amazon was even contacting me. Amazon's listen, we see what you're doing really well. We're really proud of you. And we want to offer you some of these beta programs that we have on for publishing. And so they were offering me stuff. And one was to pre set my second book up for pre-order. And I was like, yeah, I'll totally do it. And yeah. I put the second book up for pre-order on pre on for pre-order and instantly became a bestseller. Wow. 
And like New York, like New York Times bestseller? No, not New York Times, but like what Amazon bestseller. Now, see, this is where it had I been with a publishing house. Yeah. I think I would have hit New York, I would would have hit the New York Times. Yeah. It's just because I didn't have the distribution yourself published to Amazon, you're exclusive to Amazon. But at the same time, yeah, you're there. It's a it's a bestseller on Amazon as soon as you hit pre-order. That's amazing. That's amazing. Yeah. And what's interesting, so, the, and this will tell you something, when I released the second book, when the book actually released, I was outselling George R. R. Martin on Amazon. Wow. I, I have a snapshot of it. It's crazy. I was like the number two selling science fiction and fantasy. Could they have like the, the categories on Amazon? Yeah. And I remember, yeah, my, I was outselling him. I was like, oh, I feel pretty good now. <laughs> wow. So how did it, how did your relationship with the Penguin Random House come about? I was getting all those inquiries, and one was an inquiry from Plume, which is an imprint of Penguin. Okay. And it was from the editorial director, and he sent me an email. And I was – I had already kind of been blowing off everybody else because like, I'm thinking to myself, what do I need you guys for? Yeah. Yeah. And – but when – when Penguin comes knocking, though, I was like, "Wow, this is this is this is the this is the real deal here." And they were really, really excited, and they had read the book, and they had you know, they had gotten the second anyway. So, and they they offered me a pretty attractive four book deal. Wow! And I was just like really just you know it was very attractive, very really big deal financially too, and I was like. I should probably take it. They're the biggest publishing house in the world. Yeah. And it also gave me my ego really got kicked in at the time. And from an ego standpoint, I was thinking, well, this, this gives me validation as an author too. It, it you know, I, I don't think it's now that I've been writing all these years, I don't think it's fair, but it, there's a stigma out there yeah. and it's in the general population. Also some writers have it that if you're not with a main or a traditional publishing house, you're not a real writer. That being self-published doesn't really make you an author. Do you agree with that? No, I do not. Okay. No, I don't. I think that I, I and I think a lot of that is because there's been some people that self-publish books and the quality isn't there. And they think the only ones that have quality are actually not just from a technical standpoint, but just from the overall storytelling uh, are people that can go through the vetting process and be you know, with one of these big publishing houses. And that, again, that's just not, that's just not true. Yeah. And what's interesting is I had bypassed that traditional route to get there. And when I asked him, like, how did you even find me? He goes, well, it's kind of a secret, but we scan the Amazon product pages looking for people that are selling really well. Yeah. And that aren't represented. Interesting. So it was all, it was a financial thing for them. So it was a win-win. And, and as far as they were like able to, bring me under the penguin umbrella uh and they didn't have they weren't taking a chance on me i was already coming in with a built-in fan base and built-in sales yeah connected to a series that was going to have seven books had i gone with margaret initially that if had a, if i had gotten a deal the deal wouldn't not been as attractive as what I just what had what I'd secured after the fact because that now was proven commodity. Yeah. The problem with just going as an unproven commodity to the publishing houses, they would have been taking a chance on me. Yeah. They 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 wouldn't have known what I was going to be successful or not. Now they did. They're yeah. like, this guy's he's got books, he's got fans, the people are buying it. Let's let's lock this guy down. Let's strike while the iron's hot. Yeah. So they got a built-in fan base, they got built-in sales. What did you get other than um, a guaranteed 
money deal? Well, like I said, like, like the first thing was, I tell you, my ego was really kicked in at the time. And I was really feeling like I had made it. And now, now people can respect me, quote unquote, as a real author, you know. And I have a different view on that nowadays. But I was really feeling that. Gotcha. So you, you, you wanted that validation. At the time. Yeah, gotcha. yeah, yeah. And, um, and, and but with the big thing, though, and from a practical standpoint and a business standpoint, what being with a main public, big publisher like that is it, they, what they give you is distribution mm-hmm. for the print copies. Now, distribution for electronic copies, any, any self-published person can get the same distribution for electronic digital books that a mainstream publisher can. Yeah. What, what self-published people can't get is distribution to the brick and mortar stores. It just doesn't exist. It's just incredibly difficult. You might be able to go down to your local Barnes & Noble and get put onto the local shelf. That's it. But if you want your distribution to the thousands of brick and mortar stores around you know, the United States and the world, you've got to go through them. And so that's the big, big advantage I got. They also, you know, they have they have a really good editorial team, um, and that was great to work with those people. But outside of that, that was it. Outside of that four book deal, did you continue with them? I didn't. No, I, I looked at it. Well, as I was going through the experience, you know, there's a big again. They're a great company. They're a great company. It's just that they're just a really big company. To me, it's like the the bigger the company gets, it's like government agencies. The the bigger they become, the slower they move. They're like these big leviathans, right? And I did, yeah, there was just a couple things that occurred and just, just trying to fix some stuff like, oh, what, that's going to take about six months to fix. I'm like, what? And I was just, I, there was this, and and something else that happened was I'm a prolific writer. I wanted to continue to write and they told me I can't write. Mm. And that was the main thing. I was like, well, no, I'm not touching anything in my series. I was going to write something different. Like, nope. I said, that's not how I read it in the contract. Like, nope. Nothing that's even even remotely related. Wow. So I couldn't because I was thinking about starting another apocalyptic series and they were like, absolutely not. In, in fact, yep. No, I can't do it. So that, that, they kind of slowed me down. I guess we could say there hasn't been as as an attractive offer like the like the first one to continue that relationship. Yeah. Well, yes. And and I also then started I, this now, you know, that contract lasted a few years, two and a half, three years. And during that time period, I'm also learning a lot more. I'm about, I was writing. I just wasn't putting anything out. I was just creating a catalog of books during that time frame. And I started thinking myself, why can't I just duplicate what they do? Yeah. And so I was making, I mean, this is all I was doing at the time. Same as now. I'm just, I'm a full-time writer. It's how I make my living. And I was doing really good at it financially. And I was like, why why don't I just assemble my own team? Why don't I just assemble my own team of editors and, and, and proofers and formatters and graphic design people? And, but I then keep the lion's share of my royalties. Why, why only make 25% for an ebook when I can make 70%? Yeah. And so that's kind of what I did. I said, well, I'll just duplicate what they do. And that's what I did. So when the contract came up, and we we parted ways. I then had a backlog of all these books I'd written and started just pumping them out. That's why I have 32 books out now. Since 2013. Time. You have 32 books out since 2013. Yeah. Jeff, you've been at work, man. You've been at work. <laughs> is, that, is that how uh, Phalanx Press came into the picture? Well, yeah. Well, Phalanx is – it's just – those are a, guy, a group of you know like-minded writers. We get together and that, that publishing uh, outfit is – how, how do I put it? It's a little different. Well, they provide all the services, but they provide just kind of a network as well. And there's just a bunch of, there's a group of great authors in there. And we're like, you know, like, we're like brothers, a lot of uh, uh, vets in there too. And some guys are still active duty. 
that are in Phalanx. But um, I just I, I liked I liked the concept. You know, I I submitted to be a part of them, and after you know I got brought in, it's just a nice little brotherhood. And so gotcha. So I'm gonna put out I'm gonna put out some books under under their banner, which will be kind of cool. Uh, but I'm still also got my I'm still operating as what they call a hybrid, meaning I've got I've got books under you know contract still with Penguin. I have gotten another deal with Blackstone for some story. I just I just I'm just signed a six book audio deal with Tantor. So I'm still contracting out with publishing houses. I'm just not entering into them like I did back then. You're like a more of a freelancer. Kind of just doing freelance. Yeah, free agent. Very good. Very good. Um, Jeff, you, you know, from what I've seen, you've written a lot of in a lot of different genre, genres. Post apocalyptic, like we've talked about, horror, westerns. What's your favorite genre to write in? Or does that change depending on the story that you're writing? That's a great question. Uh you know, I've, uh, I like apocalyptic fiction. I love the kind of human element um, about it and kind of the what if. But there, there's, there's, there's been a couple Westerns I've written. I've really enjoyed the story. I, I, love, I love Westerns. I love that whole time period in American history. And it's, I think it's uniquely Americana. And so I do love Westerns. And then horror just is something I've just, that's, I just like, I like horror movies. I like that from a genre too. But I think apocalyptic fiction, if I had to choose one, it would be apocalyptic fiction. Gotcha. Now, I've had other writers on this podcast, um, Dale Dye and Jeff Struker, uh, and, you, and the listeners can listen to those in our archives. But it's been in addition to the other things they did at the same time. Now, you've written dozens of novels since 2013, and you've had them even translated into other languages. And you've had over 1 million books sold across your titles. For that airman, soldier, marine, sailor, coasty, or maybe even a civilian that's listening to this right now, and they have that aspiration of becoming a full-time novelist, what would you say would be that first step for them? Just right. Uh, Hemingway uh, was interviewed years ago. And I'm sure everyone's, you know, all the listeners know who Ernest Hemingway is. I hope so. Uh, yeah, I hope so too. <laughs> um, he, 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 I read a ton of his books when I was in the Marine Corps. Um, Anyway, uh, he was being interviewed a long time ago, and the reporter asked him, what's the best advice you can give an aspiring writer? And it was very simple. He just said, just write. So if you are out there and you have a story, and I think everyone has a story, by the way, and just sit down in front of your computer, open up Word, and just start writing it. Don't worry about all the details. Don't worry about, can I get it published? Like, you don't worry about publishing. You don't worry about editing. You don't worry about any of those things. Do you actually have something to edit, to publish? You just write the story. Sometimes people get they put themselves they get too far down the road in their head that they have to find these things and then it stops them. I think worrying about how you're going to get it published, who you're going to find as an editor, who's going to do my cover, those are those are distractions and they can be obstacles from the creative process. I just say just sit down in front of your computer. And just start hammering away. And then don't stop until you're done. I think that piece of advice can apply to not only writing, but filmmaking. Uh, I came from a video producer background, editing, anything, any kind of artistic, creative aspect that you have if you want to get out and you want to start working in an, an artistic field. is just do it. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, and this is, again, it, I find people like, well, maybe I'll take the next six months and go to creative writing class. And I just tell them no. Mm. I, I, again, I think what, what happens, I, I, I think people are, 
people are putting these things in front of them. Like I can't be a writer until I go to creative writing class. And so then, and then what happens is it puts that dream of writing your first book that much further away. And you go to create a writing class and you're going to come up with another obstacle. Yes. And people typically do. I think these are ways of ways for people to like stall themselves. Cause I think what's happening probably is there's a little bit of fear there. There's fear. Can I actually do this? There's fears. Will anyone like this? And, and I understand those fears. We, you know, we all have them, but we have to blast through that. And if you, if someone's listening, wants to write, just sit down and start writing. That's, that's literally all I did. Cause I remember that quote from Hemingway always burning in my head. And so I didn't, like I said, I didn't, I didn't overanalyze anything. I just sat down in front of the computer and just started writing the story that had been playing in my head like a movie for years. And I just sat down and just started, just started writing it. I didn't stop, go back re- and reread it to edit it. That's a death knell to a lot of new writers. Um, mm. Cause what happens is then they snap out of the creative space, they go back and then they become analytical. Like they're too, like they're, they switch from one side of their brain to the other. And when you're editing, it's not, you're, you're not in the creative space at all. You're in more of a technical yeah. analytical space and you're looking at your words differently. And as you're reading them and people try to make their rough draft perfect, it's a, it's called a rough draft for a reason. It's supposed to be rough. And the rough draft is created and it's that time, in that time span when you're creating the rough draft is when you're supposed to be in that creative space a hundred percent. So, I, yeah. so if someone's out there, and they're and they're and they want to write. Just start writing, and don't. And when I mean don't stop, don't stop. Like don't go back. Don't write for an hour, and then read what you just written. Self doubt mm-hmm. typically comes and and hits those people in the face, and they go, "Oh, this isn't good." They start editing what they've done, and they start becoming frustrated. Like this isn't read right. I can't do this, and it stops so many new writers when they go back and then they uh, they read what they've just written. So I just say, write your story out until it's done because there's plenty of time to do editing and rewrites, but get the rough Very draft good. done. And then what happens too, there's also a psychological component to that. Once you put the end out of your rough draft, you've written a book. Congratulations. I always tell people, once you've done that, like save it, close your computer and go celebrate. You've just done something that's, that's uh, uh, tremendous. Go celebrate. And then tomorrow, the next day, come back, open it up, and then begin the heavy process of rewrites. Ah, very good. What's is a, what's a future goal of yours? Um, is it is it like maybe getting a, a movie deal, a la George Martin, or like HBO deal, or yes, anything like yes, that? Yes, that's it. I, I think the natural organic progression for me now is to have a movie. Very good. And I've even contemplated making my own. Do you have a favorite of, of one of yours? Yeah, uh, the end. I think it's just a, it's just a it's just a solid story. It sets the series up really well, and it's and it could be adapted to television or a movie. I think better for television. I think because you can get the, you'll get a lot all the flesh off you know off the bone on that. Um, I I think a lot of writers would agree with you in that. I think uh, you know like like I keep going back to the Game of Thrones since it's a, since it's a recent example. Um, you couldn't do that in a in a, in a two hour movie. No. You know, you couldn't do that. even a, even a three three movie series. You couldn't get all that out. You just, there's not enough time to, to flesh out all the characters. 
Yeah, it's difficult. You know, I know a lot of people, you know, well, they blame, you know, movie or directors and screenwriters. It's not their fault, though. I mean, I'm, I've, I've now I've now know a few movie producers and directors and screenwriters. And I was in fact, I was just had lunch a couple weeks ago with this one screenwriter. And, and it's it's not their fault. I mean, their, their job is to take something, a three or four hundred page book, and they, they have to try to fit that into an hour and a half to two hours. It's, so it's difficult. So it's not, yeah. you know, it, it's, I know a lot of readers are like, I can't believe it. They took this person out, but the, the screenwriter's caught in a rock between a rock and a hard place. So char- some characters have to get cut. They have to kind of slash and cut and, in order to fit within those time constraints. So, but if you have 10 hours, yes, yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's it. And that's how you do it. Yeah. Jeff, what is one thing that you learned in service in the Marine Corps that you apply to what you're doing today? Uh, never quit. Hmm. Yeah, I and that's I, that's something I now really drill into my girls, I really, my kids. I really tell them just don't quit. Outstanding. So you know, we all we all fail. You know, like there's failures. Failures is just a part of life. It allows you to grow. Allows you to like whatever I'm doing is not. This isn't working for this. But the, do, what you do is you adjust your action steps because you still you have a goal. As you're on your on your way to your goal, you have a failure. Doesn't mean it's over. This means you have to change your action steps to continue to your goal. So. I just tell them to accept failure. It's okay. And I'm totally fine with them to do it, but never quit. Yeah. There's a lot to learn in failure. Totally. Yep. Um, Jeff, is there anything else that I might've missed or didn't ask that you think it's our audience should know about? I, I would just say this. If there's any, there is anybody out there that, that has an idea for a book that, that is a storyteller. They just haven't taken that step. Just do it. If you want any, you want any advice at all, I'm all my doors always open. So you know, please, please send me an email uh, at Jeff at gmichaelhoff.com and or find me on Facebook at facebook.com backslash gmichaelhoff and just send me a direct message. So again, I'm always open to give advice to to writers across the board from from the writing part of it to the to the editing part or the publishing part or the marketing part I'm, I just give away information because I want everyone to be successful out there getting out of the military I was missing this camaraderie it's frustrating when you try and talk to people that don't understand I still had the anger I still had the addictions but we didn't talk about that came to a point where it's like, okay, I really need to talk to somebody about this. Family more or less encouraged me, you know, go go to the VA. It's okay to go get help. It's okay to talk to people because it takes true strength to ask for help. Hear veterans' real stories of strength and recovery at maketheconnection.net. I want to thank Jeff for coming on the show and sharing his very unique story. For more information on Jeffrey Michael Hopf, you can find it at G Michael Hopf, all one word. That's gmichaelhopf.com. This week, our Born the Battle Veteran of the Week is Marine Corps veteran Benjamin Palmer, who was my former XO when I was with Marine Air Ground Tactical Squadron 28 back in 2006, 2007 timeframe. Right when I got back from Iraq, I was working in an S1 Uh, So I interacted with Major Palmer daily. Major Palmer was, if you had a picture of what a Marine was supposed to look like, tall, screaming flat top, square jaw, big chest, little legs. That was Major Palmer. I also remember that he could run for days. Uh, He got into running in the the previous deployment. And see, during that deployment, I I was attached to the group 
at the group level. So I didn't see this transformation to Major Palmer until we got back uh, from deployment. He got into running like like hardcore during that time. So when I got back, man, he could I he could just run circles around the entire unit during squadron PT sessions. One distinct memory that I have of Major Palmer is on a self-paced flak jacket run uh, was that nobody could catch up to him at all. He just left everybody in the dust. And I remember, I also remember that he may have looked hard, uh, you know, like I, said, like I said, screaming flat top, square jaw, big dude, big bulldog looking dude. But I remember him as a very, very even keeled leader who had a huge smile that would come out frequently when when something funny happened in front of him or when he was able to mentor or take care of one of the Marines in his unit. I left that unit and that MOS and, and completely changed the trajectory of my career. And Major Palmer went on to become Lieutenant Colonel Palmer, and he became the CEO of another squadron in the group, uh, 2nd Low Altitude Air Defense Battalion, 2nd LAD. After his stint as CEO, he was then assigned to, to the staff for Marine Wing Headquarters Squadron 2, which ironically was the first unit I had ever served in, and was deployed to Camp Dwyer, Helmand Province in Afghanistan to serve on a mentoring team for the Afghan National Civil Order Police. Sadly, three weeks into that deployment, on May 12, 2011, exactly nine years and one day ago, from the drop of this episode, Lieutenant Colonel Palmer and another Marine, Sergeant Kevin Baldruff, were shot and killed in the police compound as they were preparing to eat lunch by a gunman who was dressed in an Afghan police uniform. Lieutenant Colonel Benjamin Palmer is survived by a wife and three children. I'm sure as his family, the Marines that he served with miss him dearly. And we honor his service. That's it for this week's episode. If you yourself would like to nominate a Born the Battle Veteran of the Week, you can. Just send us an email to podcast at va.gov, include a short write-up, and let us know why you'd like to see him or her as the Born the Battle Veteran of the Week. And if you like this podcast episode, hit the subscribe button. We're on iTunes, Spotify, Google Podcast, iHeartRadio, pretty much any podcasting app known to phone, tablet, computer, or man. For more stories on veterans and veteran benefits, check out our website, blogs.va.gov, and follow the VA on social media, Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, YouTube, RallyPoint, DEPT Vet Affairs, U.S. Department of Veterans Affairs, no matter where you find us on social media, you will always find us with that blue check mark. And as always, I am reminded by people smarter than me to remind you that the Department of Veterans Affairs does not endorse or officially sanction any entities that may be discussed in this podcast nor any media products or services they may provide. Thank you again for listening. We'll see you again right here next week. Take care.